Welcome to Orchard Bible Church. My name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here. We have gathered for our teaching service, and we'll be continuing in our series from 1 Peter. Our scripture passage is from 1 Peter chapter 3, which is on page 1015 in the Bible you'll find in a chair rack nearby. Also, there'll be an outline in your bulletin, and as you gather those things together, I have a couple quick announcements to make. First of all, I want to remind you that this is the week that begins a cooking class. You'll see a flyer in your bulletin. Ladies, if you want to come, please do sign up so that you get to come. And you'll see the details this Saturday starts at 2 o'clock. And uh, you'll need to sign up. And there's information in your bulletin to do so. Secondly, if you want to contact us, uh, one of the pastors here or us as a group, you can do so in a couple of ways. One is to fill out a card right back here by the double doors is a little card. You can fill in some details. We can get to know one another. Or if you have a prayer request to communicate, you can also do that online at pastors at orchardbible.org. If you fill out that information, confidential prayer request, whether you're a guest here or one of our members, we'd love to hear from you in that way. And now as we prepare our hearts to hear the message, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word before Jeff comes to preach? We'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are as zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you that we can pray and we can honestly sing that it is well with our soul. And that has nothing to do with any of our circumstances here on earth, um, nothing to do with our own abilities, the blessings that you've given us here, but it has everything to do with your son and the blood that he paid on the cross so that we can be with you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. And I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts and our minds to follow you. In your name, amen. All right, please be seated. So I wanted to open um, with a welcoming story, but I've got a lot of ground to cover, and I figured you'd rather me skip the intro than arrive at your lunch two minutes later. Am I correct? So hearing no objections to that, we're going to actually just jump straight in. So our our few passages, our few verses here this morning, they're part of a larger section that tells Christians on how they ought to live in a world that's hostile to their presence. This section is introduced in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And it exhorts believers to live in a distinctly Christ-like manner so that non-Christians would be able to observe these differences and decide to submit to God. 
Our passage, it's preceded by different exhortations that we've gone over, and it's been in a rightly relating series, and it's rightly relating to ungodly authorities, to unjust masters, to spouses, to one another. And although some of these commands here, they have their individual benefits, such as a happy and strong marriage, they all have underpinnings connecting them about living a winsome life that points unbelievers to God. And so our passage is a continued exhortation and winsome conduct. It begins in verse 13 as a natural conclusion to the prior section, which in particular, uh, verse 12. And the word that connects it, what we see is now in verse 13, it's from the Greek word chi, and that's a conjunction meaning and. And it connects verse 13 directly to verse 12. So this isn't a change in topic. It's not even elaborating on it. It's a continuation of thought. So if we're going to paraphrase verses 12 and 13 together, it would be something like this. God supports the righteous and opposes evildoers. Therefore, who would harm you if you do good, especially if God's on your side? Peter's making the point in verse 13 that most people would appreciate your disposition toward good and to be less prone to persecute you, even if they don't like what you stand for. And he caveats his own logic, though, in verse 14, stating that if people still harm you, then the Lord will bless you. So don't fear man. But as verse 15 says, if you do fear the Lord and live righteously, you too will point to Christ in your righteous behavior, much like how a godly wife could lead her husband, her unbelieving husband, to the Lord. Yet, even if your opponents don't come to the faith, verse 16 explains that at least you have a clear conscience, knowing that you have not sinned and that if you have suffered, it's for good and not for evil. So with that brief summary in mind, we're going to analyze our passage by what I think Peter's three main points are to his audience in the text. So first, don't fear man, but fear God. Second, become zealous for good and endure suffering if it comes. And third, be ready to share your hope in the gospel. So as for Peter's first main point, don't fear man, fear God. If a believer fears God only and not man, then his lifestyle will naturally be in line with what pleases God. So when we look at verse 14 and it says, has no fear of them, the question is, who is them? And these were the people who wanted to harm Peter's audience, and they're described in verse 16 as those who slander and revile the believers. And the word for slander, it's best translated as traduce, which I actually had to look up, um, but that means to falsely speak lies about someone with the intention of damaging their reputation. So Peter tells his audience, don't fear such people. And the the phrase literally means the fears of them not to be afraid of. So there's three different options, which some some of the commentators choose different ones. But it's don't fear what they fear, or don't fear their threats, or don't fear them. And while all three of these statements are true, I think not fearing their threats is most in line with our context of verse 13 about harm and injury, and mistreatment. And the reason I wanted to draw that out is I don't think Peter is writing to people about a hypothetical of in the event that you were, you know, to be hurt or these being overly cautious about unbelievers, I think these believers, his audience, have actually received specific threats. So the only way that they cannot be troubled when they're being threatened is for believers to fear God and not man. Peter says, in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. And the word that the ESV translates as honor is literally to sanctify, to treat as holy or to set apart, to revere or hold in honor. And this sanctified fear of Jesus and God is what is able to dispel our fear of man. And this is for two reasons. First, because if you submit to God and God is for you, 
then the logic is, if God is for you, then who can be against you? And that's what's echoed in verse 12. The second reason is what Jesus instructed, instructed Peter and the disciples in Luke 12. He told them, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Simply put, fear God because God has the final say. Even though man can hurt you here, they can't make a smidge of difference in your eternal life. But God has complete authority over both life here on earth and your eternal life to come. So when we fear and revere and obey God over any man, we have no, anxious, no reason to be anxious. And furthermore, there'll be a marked change in our disposition toward life and our behavior, which brings us to Peter's second point. Become zealous for good and endure suffering if it comes. So Peter, he asks a pragmatic question in verse 13. He says, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And the logical response is, well, no one. So this indicates that Peter wrote before Nero had begun his infamous persecution. Otherwise, if you had all the believers there listening to that question, they would collectively respond, well, it's Nero. Nero would hurt us. But Peter actually, if you look in verse um, 13 of chapter 2, he still portrayed the government as an agent for good. And then in verse 14 of our passage, when it says, but even if you should suffer... The verb form that's used with suffer, and, and when you couple that with the word even, it implies, Peter's basically saying, in the unlikely yet possible event that you suffer. So some persecution was possible, likely as localized events, but it had not become the widespread organized imperial persecution that we hear about later. However, this will change in a few short years, and so this letter was quite timely to, pe- to prepare his audience for what was to come. But at the time when Peter was writing, and in most circumstances, his point holds true. People are far less likely to harm or slander you if they think that you're doing good. So to avoid harm and to honor Christ, Peter encourages his readers to become zealous for good. And I like the definition um, for zealous. It actually, it literally means to boil over with passion. So the phrase, if you are zealous in the, in the ESV, it's a little bit misleading in some ways because it's better translated as if you become zealous. And though it's a subtle difference, it's worth noting because it doesn't permit a loophole. You cannot say, well, I'm not really wired to be an overly passionate person. Peter would reply, that's okay, me neither. And you know, mo- most of Christian character I've had to work on and build into myself. So you can cultivate this passion too. So the exhortation is not if you happen to be zealous, it's to be or to become zealous. So how do you become zealous? And I think verse 15 gives us a clue for part of that. It starts with sanctifying Christ in your heart. The heart, as we know, is the control center. And if your heart is honed in on God, then you will naturally produce and sustain passion for good. And your desires will become, um, will take on God's desires. And we'll come more, uh, we'll come back to that later. Now, Peter, he then caveats his own logic, knowing that this isn't always the case, and that if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. In the original Greek, it actually reflects the present tense, that they already are blessed. So suffering results in immediate blessing. And this is what um, Peter had heard Jesus teach him on the Sermon of the Mount as well, as we're familiar with these verses. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
So if suffering is endured properly, it'll result in spiritual growth and heavenly reward. And so Peter's not advising his readers to flee suffering, but rather to reflect and examine their behavior and ensure that they were suffering for good, but not for evil. Then they could have a clear conscience and know that they were honoring God and that God's will, it was God's will that they should suffer then. And in addition to honoring God, their good manner of life and their righteous endurance of suffering would put their opponents to shame. And the word uh, put to shame, it, it means made to blush, which I think shows a little bit of color to it. Those, no pun intended, but those who reviled and criticized the Christians, they'd be embarrassed of their malice. They would consider how the believers, that their, their passion for good and their patient endurance, and I think they would know in their hearts that they themselves couldn't live such committed lives or endure that kind of persecution in that manner. So this disposition and their demeanor, it would silence their slander, but it would also soften their opponents to Peter's third point, which is be ready to share your hope in the gospel. So reading part of verse 15 again, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter told his readers that they ought to have a gentle and respectful answer about their own personal hope. His readers didn't have to be prepared to defend the whole theology of Christian faith. They don't need to be apologetics experts, but a Christian did need to be able to respectfully articulate how it is that they have hope and why it is that they've personally chosen to believe. And the word defense, you might be familiar or recognize it's apologia. It's a combination of two words that means from intelligent reasoning. And this term, it's most frequently used in the ancient courts when they'd have to give a legal defense. And today you've heard it in terms of biblical apologetics, in terms of uh, giving evidences for the Christian faith. However, the point that Peter's making here is that any believer should be capable of and prepared to give a well-reasoned and thought-out response for their personal faith and hope. So there's two aspects that are worth noting about their response. First, it is a response to a question from an unbeliever who was inquiring about it. That means that their good behavior and lifestyle was righteous and distinct enough that unbelievers took notice and were intrigued about it. Second, a Christian should always be prepared. And when, when you look at it, what it means specifically there, the fuller definition is standing by or ready because all the necessary preparations are actually already done. So this is more than just being willing this is more than being emotionally eager to engage and maybe shoot from the hip. This is already being ready because you already have a well-thought-out defense for your faith and hope. So now that we've looked at the passage in light of its meaning for the original audience, let's reflect on some of these pieces as a whole and go through some of our applications today. Our first application is going to be refocus your perspective. So as we discussed in Peter's time, Christianity was new and honestly it was suspect to the culture. Opponents, they would threaten and sometimes persecute believers. And Peter reminds his audience that they are to fear God, not man. And if persecution did come, their suffering would be blessing. So our application today is still to fear God and not man, but also to see suffering as, a, as what it is, a spiritual blessing. And we'll think through who are the opponents that we have today and what might a suffering on account of good look like for us today in our culture. And the takeaway is to refocus your perspective. The second application is examine and refine your lifestyle. Peter exhorted the believers to live in a manner that the culture would respect so that their opponents wouldn't bother them, but also perhaps their opponents would even inquire about Christianity. 
So, but if suffering came, they should be sure it wasn't due to any sin on their own part. So we need to consider today, how should we live to counter our typical criticisms and win our opponents to the faith? We also need to be sure that we aren't giving people reasonable cause to dislike Christians. And that's application number two, examine and refine your lifestyle. And then application number three is prepare to share. So Peter, he instructed his readers to always be prepared to share the reason for the hope in them. They were to share the gospel with gentleness and respect. And our application is no different. We too should be prepared to defend our own personal reasons for faith. In addition to having an answer ready when asked, we also should be proactively sharing the gospel, as other Bible verses tell us to do. So that's application number three, prepare to share. But before we dive into these three applications, I want to take one minute to speak to those here who may not call themselves Christians. First off, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. But second, I want to back up and just quickly explain what it is when we say we have hope. And I think that everyone here would probably word it differently, but here's my reason to hope. This is not all that there is in life. There will be a time when there's no pain, when there's no suffering, and where joy doesn't end. I'll be in God's presence and unafraid and blameless. And that is the best news. And my real hope that I have is that eternity that's promised to me, it's secure and it cannot change. My salvation, it's found only in Jesus. I bring nothing to the table. And I don't have to. In fact, I can't. And even if I did try to bring something to the table, that is the point at which I'm no longer welcome to be at the table anymore. My hope is that God wants my heart, not my performance, and that I have gladly given him my heart because he is good and he has lovingly pursued me. He's wonderful, majestic, powerful, and merciful, and he personifies righteousness and yet wants a relationship with me. So I am drawn to him because he loved me even when I hated him. And that hope that I have, that we have, can be yours too. All that's needed is to believe and receive, to admit that you actually need salvation from yourself. So I encourage you to think about what hope it is that you have that can match that kind of hope that we have in Jesus and that it can be yours too. So as you listen to us walk through these applications here, just know that Jesus calls believers, each of us here, to deeply care for you because he deeply cares for you. So moving on to application number one then. In the midst of opposition, persecution, shame, isolation, whatever it might be, refocus your perspective. Fear God, not man. Seek to please God and not man. And I'm certain that this passage hits home harder for believers who are living in a hostile nation where simply owning a Bible or gathering together for worship in a believer's home could get them thrown in prison or even killed. This passage, of course, is still relevant for us in this room, but in considering what our persecution might be, I don't want to downplay the severity of what persecution looks like for believers in much of the world today. For those whose lives, jobs, relationships are all on the line, Peter's exhortation to fear God is not just a refreshingly useful reminder, but it's an anchor for their soul to press on. So when we're thinking about how this pa passage translates to us and our potential discomforts here, let's not lose sight of the bigger picture that Peter is addressing believers in his time and believers today in other parts of the world whose very lives might be at stake. But thinking about Christian opposition in America... We do have it pretty good. We're protected by law to assemble here for worship. 
We have bookstores and uh, churches on every major corner. We have freedom of speech. However, that's not to say that we're without our critics for things that are both good and bad about the church. And although we are likely safe from physical harm that's mentioned in verses 13 and 14, we still are certainly the subject of slander and reviling that's mentioned in verse 16. One area that Christianity is almost universally critiqued in in America is because we will call out good what is morally right, and we will say evil or sinful what is morally wrong. It can be as simple as disagreeing with and abstaining from socially acceptable practices. That, in turn, indicts those who approvingly practice of them. So we don't have time to go through each one and consider you know, the multitude of beliefs that we might say this is sinful and yet our culture is offended by that. But to list some big ones, abortion, cursing, homosexuality, pornography, getting drunk or high, gossip, pride, materialism, sex outside of marriage, any of things we can look at these and say, yes, that is wrong. But our culture will refrain from condemning these and they'll even applaud some of them. And so the fact that we either abstain from these or we are willing to call that wrong, that is enough to bring slander on us at times. And while we technically have the freedom to hold such views and to voice them, I think there's a gradually erosive trend to these freedoms. And it's possible that the next generations of believers are going to live in quite a different atmosphere than we have today. So like Peter's original audience, we may find ourselves sooner than expected suffering with the rest of the persecuted church in the world. So what is our response to current and growing opposition? Well, like I said, to trust God and not to worry about the outcome. Commentator Karen Jobs, she remarked, if suffering is within God's will, it is also within his sovereign control. And thus, Christian suffering is determined not by the will of one's adversaries, but by the will of one's heavenly Father. So if you know that your heavenly Father is good, then you can trust him. So a believer's response to culture's opposition is to refocus their perspective, to honor God, to trust God no matter the consequences. In suffering, it's not as though Satan is winning and overpowering God. Suffering is part of God's will, and we are blessed by it. So because we've already discussed suffering a fair amount in our series here on 1 Peter, um, I'm going to move on to the second response, which is to examine and refine our lifestyle. And while it would be nice to reimage Christianity's general reputation in our culture, your concern should be that you and your local church are winsome. And although there's slanderous journal pieces about Christians being ignorant or narrow-minded or bigots, whatever term, I can confidently say that no unbeliever who knows me from work, climbing, or my neighborhood would ever call me a bigot, even though they know my stance on homosexuality, gender identity, and abortion. And I hope that could be said of everyone here. And I think part of that is because it's very easy to label and judge people when they don't have faces, when you just say those people, when you generically group Christians in general. But perhaps these negative stereotypes would change if Christians in general engaged and befriended more lost people and became known for their love and care of people rather than being aloof and disapproving of culture. But we can still toe the line and love people and engage culture at the same time. But our goal isn't to win over America's media, but it is to win over the individual lives and for our local assembly to be a beacon of Christ's love, such that those who we interact with on a regular basis will know that we love God and that God loves them. 
And the main response then in this and, and to opposition, opposition is to trust and obey God and honor him no matter what the cost is and to become zealous for good. So as for combating criticisms with common good, uh, we went through some of these examples when, when we looked at uh, Second Peter or at uh, chapter 2, um, verses 11 through 12, so I'm not going to repeat them, but I've continued reflecting on what might our culture respect or admire such that an opponent or a critic might change their mind about you. So I'll share just um, one idea that's a generic principle that each of us can practice here. <clears throat> and actually, Nate Ayers and a book titled uh, Unoffendable had both mentioned this universally admired idea, which is to treat everybody as equally valuable. To show kindness and respect to every person, regardless of their position, their status, their age, or their beliefs. So in the workplace, this might look like giving equal attention to your admin assistant, to your team leader, to your project staff, to your client, to your new intern, to the regional manager. And in the neighborhood, this might be welcoming into your home the divorced older man, the single young woman, the family with young children, the retired couple, but fellowshipping equally with each of them. The takeaway is to care for each person, not based on what you might get out of it or how naturally you might connect with them, but because they are equally valued by God. Each is an image bearer with an eternal soul. And the outcome of taking your atheist intern out to lunch, it likely won't be their conversion, but I would guess they'll be less prone to slander Christians in the future because of that. So whatever the outward action in, is in your life, be sure that you are intentionally becoming zealous for it and that your audience actually sees the good in it too. Now, one other point, I wish I had more time to spend on this, but I've limited it to one minute, um, which is fine because there's some overlap. But uh, Peter says, make sure that you're suffering for what is good and not evil. So a logical extension of that would be don't shoot yourself in the foot. And uh, actually, Paul Grauman had said this well. He said, the gospel is already offensive. We don't need to add to it. Okay? So even if it's not a matter of evil, but it's just a point of unhelpful contention, use wisdom. And I would say, do your best in all the neutral or non-moral areas to be a Jew to the Jews and a Greek to the Greeks. So to give you a few examples, with Trump already in office, is there really still a reason to wear a MAGA hat? Okay? Another one, don't tell your eco-friendly neighbor, I don't recycle because it's all going to burn in the end anyway. Okay? And then on a more serious note, I've actually heard homeschooling parents brush off school shootings saying, if you kick God and prayer out of school, then what do you expect? Okay? These are not helpful things to do or to say, and yet they are still said. In fact, most abrasive things don't need to be said at all. But if something harsh does need to be said, at least put some salt on it. Okay? So some of us, we need to soften our edges so that people aren't tripping over us on their way to Jesus. Our distinctness should attract, not detract. It should point to Christ, not our personal preferences. So now let's turn our focus on pointing to Christ in our third application, prepare to share. Now there's a ton that could be discussed here, and a bunch of it I've personally found very helpful, encouraging, and practical, enough so that actually Nate's going to focus his message on this next Sunday, exclusively on this topic, and he'll expound on some concepts that he taught previously at a Sunday nights at Orchard, which I had found helpful, so I'd encourage you to be here next week or listen online. Um, but today, I'm just briefly going to lay some groundwork and then offer a few practical suggestions, so... Um, I could fill our time here with scriptural admonitions and convicting quotes, such as Spurgeon's, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. 
or pipers go, send, and disobey, or disobey. But I think that 95% of everyone here already knows that they should be evangelizing more than they do. And discussing evangelism, it's a surefire way to make Christians feel guilty. And therefore, I don't need to say much to convict your heart or my own heart. Rather, I want to encourage you with what I have found helpful and encouraging. And so as we think through some of these items, please know that I'm processing it for my own development as well. And actually, to steal a metaphor that um, Reed Tostic had used from his Sunday night at Orchard class, let's visualize this time as we're all on a bus moving toward healthy evangelism. We're all growing in this area together, and I just merely happen to be driving the bus. I'm not there yet. Many of you there are more, many of you are more faithful than me in this area. I'm wanting to grow in my faithfulness to being an ambassador to Christ. I just happen to be driving the bus right now. So as we talk this morning, an obvious disclaimer is that a 15-minute section on evangelism today and a 45-minute section next week are not going to radically change your evangelism. It's a manner of life that needs to be intentionally cultivated. You won't develop in this habit passively. And James Kennedy, he's the founder of Evangelism Explosion, he observed something very critical about Christian training on evangelism, at least door-to-door evangelism. He wanted to mobilize his whole congregation to do more door-to-door in their neighborhood, and so he led a six-week class on it. And he waited a few months, but found no participants had gone out on their own. So he led a 12-week class, but still no one was reaching out to strangers. So finally, he led a 15-week elaborate class on it, but yet with no results. And then it finally dawned on him that he himself had three years in seminary, but had never once witnessed to strangers until an experienced Christian took him by the hand and did on-the-job training with him. And so then he founded Evangelism Explosion, which is a program where he took people with him to evangelize on-the-job training. And slowly it grew as the trainees became the trainers, and many people have been led to the Lord through it. And in a missional, relational practice like evangelism, reading books just isn't going to substitute for learning by doing. So if you're eager to become confident in evangelism, I would highly recommend that you join an experienced Christian in their stranger evangelism efforts. The goal being that if you can share the gospel with a stranger, then you can readily and naturally share it with anyone. Friends, family, coworkers, neighbors. So if you can become comfortable at a door, you can become comfortable in really any situation. However, much to your relief, we're not taking a mandatory field trip to the skate park today. We've done those before. All right, and I, have, I do have one limited objective for a brief time today, which is to spark a desire in you to grow in this area. And I'm also going to tee it up for Nate next week, who will give you the silver bullet for eliminating fears and getting results. So be here next week. My plan then is to describe what I believe are two very powerful insights into what fuels and sustains effective evangelism. One is having a heart that's knitted to God, and the second is having an eternal perspective. And then also I'm going to share a few simple um, practical tips that have helped me. But first, a quick note on what I have in mind by evangelism. There often seems to be an unnecessarily uh, intimidating stigma that's associated with the word evangelism. It conjures up ideas of street preaching or quoting Bible verses to strangers or confrontation. And while those do happen and they're important, um, that's not what we're considering today. 
And if you look at verse 15, that's not what Peter's considering. Peter's expecting his readers not to undertake open-air preaching, but to be able to share the gospel with those who are interested. And every Christian in this room should be able to occasionally hold spiritual conversations and share components of the gospel with people in their sphere of influence. So to be simple and natural in that approach is often the most effective. It can be and often should be as simple as naturally just weaving gospel tidbits into everyday conversation. And perhaps it's helpful to not even think of it as weaving Jesus into conversation because by using the term weaving, that's kind of implying you were cunning enough to insert Jesus where he didn't belong. But that's not the case. If you are a believer, Jesus is central to your life. So let your conversation reflect that. In the same way that parents can't help but mention their children, or CrossFitters can't help but mention their workout and diet, then you too should struggle to stay silent about your Savior. Evangelism doesn't always have to be, let's get serious time. doesn't have to mean you're having coffee with a friend, laughing over a funny story, and then you change your demeanor and say, look, Sarah, I've been meaning to talk to you about your eternity. It might be as simple as mentioning your friend's comment reminded you of a Bible verse that you recently read, and then ask, hey, have you read the Bible before? What do you, what do you think? And then let the conversation unfold from there. There are infinite variations on what you might mention, questions you can lead with, questions they might ask in return, how you might transition the conversation to spiritual matters. And that's part of the beauty of having a collective body that follows Christ. We would each do it differently. We don't have a single rehearsed message or routine that we bring to people. We aren't offering them a recording from God. We're offering them a relationship with God. And this is related to the first altering perspective for me. Evangelism, effective evangelism, stems from a heart that's knitted to God, not a guilty conscience. And the difference between being guilt-driven and heart-inspired is the difference between extracting groundwater with a hand pump versus water flowing out of a natural spring. Jesus said, "Out out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And Nate's going to teach on this next week, so I'm only going to share one thought and move on. Being prepared to share is dependent on your heart's connection to God. When you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, you're not drawing on memory or past experiences. You're just overflowing from the current condition of where you're at right now. So similar to learning a a foreign language by immersion rather than reading it in a dictionary, dwelling in the word and having a true love for Jesus and the lost will make you ready. You don't have to be a walking encyclopedia, just a believer that's faithfully walking with the Lord. The next topic I want to briefly touch on is the impact of eternal perspective, which I guess that's what the Sunday Nights at Orchard is about tonight. So I have to frequently remind myself that this life, it's not about my work, not about my house or my family or my recreation. It's about serving God and preparing myself and others to meet him. And there's an acronym for the Bible that's helpful, albeit a little bit tacky, but it's Basic information before leaving earth. And the point is to remember that our brief time here on earth, it determines our course for eternity. And with this in mind, there's three views that have significantly shaped how I relate to the lost. The first one, the lost have no safety net whatsoever. If they die without having submitted to Christ, that seals the eternal fate for their soul. There's no fallback plan. There's no recovery, there's no repayment, there's no way out. It's final and forever. And this is what Revelation 14 says of someone in that state. 
He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. A passage like that, it ought to dash to pieces any worry or misgivings we have about social awkwardness. That's what's on the line. The second point is evangelism is a win-win-win situation. You win when they receive the gospel and believe. You win when you plant a seed and someone else waters it. But you also win when you're rejected and reviled because Jesus says rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. The only time you lose is when you don't share. And then the third one is God is at work beyond you. You're not the only Christian that God is using in their life, and the results belong to God. You don't need to close the deal, and the response isn't on your shoulders. So these three points, they've helped me to regain the correct perspective. It's so easy to lose perspective, to lose focus on what really matters. Maintaining perspective requires focusing on what's truly important despite life's competing distractions. So to illustrate this difficulty of keeping focus, I've actually asked our AV team to show a quick clip that's going to test how closely you can pay attention. So there's going to be two teams on the screen that are passing basketballs. And your job is to closely watch and count how many times the players in white t-shirts pass their basketball. And feel free to compete with your neighbor to see who gets it right. But the first pass happens fairly quickly, but if you keep your eye on the white team, you should be able to keep up. So AV team, if you want to start the video and everyone count in your head. All right, thanks. All right, so raise your hand if you counted 15 passes. Okay, fair amount, all right. Raise your hand if you counted 15 passes and you noticed the gorilla. Oh, that's good, good for you guys. All right, how about hands up if you noticed the gorilla but didn't count 15 passes? Okay, that's, that's more than I thought. So when I first saw this video, actually, I didn't, I didn't see the gorilla the first time. So there's nothing that's hidden or obscured about the gorilla. It's in plain sight. So those who saw it, they, maybe you guys are either great multitaskers or you weren't focused on the task directly at hand. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that we can, be, we can so easily lose our spiritual perspective when we focus intently on things and demands of this world. Whether it's, you know, your work, children, car troubles, vacation plans, school, TV, paying bills, leisure, whatever it is, something else is saying, pay attention to me, okay? And I believe the main reason that we fail to evangelize is not because we don't know what to say, but it's because we lose sight of spiritual reality and we miss the opportunities that are right in front of us. And we are so focused on life's basketballs going back and forth that we miss this big gorilla walking through the room. Basically, we aren't prepared to share. 
So being a faithful ambassador for Christ requires maintaining perspective and being on the lookout for uh, opportunities. The Gospel Coalition, they wrote about this on being aware, and they use the analogy that when you're shopping for a white van, you suddenly are aware of all the white fans that are driving around you. It never occurred to you how many white vans were on the road before until you wanted one. And similarly, there's plenty of opportunities for evangelistic conversation. And you will notice them if you're passionate about the loss and if you're already prepared to share the hope that you have. So with the remaining time, uh, we're going to cruise through several tips for evangelism that should be on a slide above me. And while I certainly cannot do this topic justice, I at least want to highlight several tips that have been helpful to me. The first is be distinctly Christ-like and winsome. Are you positive and encouraging to people? Are you thankful and generous? Could you be described as peaceful or joyful? If you're viewed as joyless or weighed down by politics or work, people are either going to conclude that God's not central to your life or that he's small. The second is start small and be natural. You might remember um, Canon, the camera commercials with the tennis player, Maria Sharapova, make every shot a power shot. Um, And that's not our goal here in conversation. Seldom is a comprehensive forceful gospel presentation ever merited in normal conversation. So be personable, engaging, encouraging, and openly Christian. Be an excited Christian version of yourself. You don't have to imitate other people's methods. So share your passion for Jesus in the same way that you would anything else in your life, whether it's climbing or hunting, scrapbooking, cars, whatever it is that you are excited about, share in the same way about your faith and about Jesus. It's who you are. Next one is ask questions and aim to understand. You need to first determine what they believe before sharing what you believe. Don't assume you know their background or their preconceptions. Determine what's important to them. Ask what their goal in life is. Get to know who they really are and care about their uniqueness. They're not a project. And this relates to the next point. Share with those who are wanting or ready to hear. If they're not wanting to hear it, then you can't force it. And if you're not sure, ask for permission. You might say, That's interesting. I heard you say this. Can I share with you what the Bible says about that? And honestly, some people aren't ready for the gospel yet. To someone who thinks that they are good enough to be saved on their own merit, you first need to show them that they need to be saved before you present a savior. Next is pray for, plan, and pitch transitions. Each of us have unsaved people in our life that we already know quite well. And you probably already know when you're going to see them next. So plan ahead. Think through the likely conversation topics that are going to come up and be prepared. Come with two or three possible transition statements to bring the conversation spiritual if it goes there. Think of questions that will prompt them to ask you a similar question in return so you can turn the conversation spiritual. For example, to a coworker getting married, where are you having the wedding? Who's, married you? Who's marrying you? Do you have any faith associated with that? Ask your neighbor, what are your favorite Christmas traditions? Ask your classmate on Monday, what did you do yesterday? And then they can ask you. Also, don't hold back from asking the weighty questions too. For example, my neighbor had had a heart attack. So I asked him, what do you think would have happened if your wife wasn't around to take you to the hospital? And he said, I probably would have died. So what do you think would have happened then? And then we had a 20-minute conversation about eternity. There's plenty of opportunities to turn the conversation spiritual. Just be aware and don't be afraid to go there. Next, use surroundings and relatable experiences. And as for surroundings, it helps that we don't live in Nebraska. 
Psalm 19.1 says, the mountains declare the glory of God. And I've been with several secular climbers who will freely admit that the mountains actually make them wonder about God, or at least there has to be something. And it's a great opportunity to talk. And as for relatable experiences, are you able to share your faith and your personal testimony in a way that an unbeliever with no biblical background could relate to it, avoiding all the Christianese terms that we've become so accustomed to? And lastly, be honest, personal, caring, and joyful. Admit if you don't know an answer to their question, but also be unashamedly honest if you do know the answer and it's hard to swallow. If they ask about the afterlife, you cannot sugarcoat the fact that they are on their way to an eternity to hell. They need to know that, but they also need to see that you are deeply concerned for their soul's well-being. And it's not that you're trying to win an argument. It's not that you're trying to get piety points in heaven. It's rather that you are concerned about sparing their soul from the wrath to come. Such honesty requires an emotional balance between seriousness and joy. And remember that while we understand the gravity that's at hand, they don't. They don't see that. So our demeanor still needs to be congruent with our message. And our message is good news. And often evangelism, we can be too serious or too somber. We need to balance that with the joy that's behind our message. And while there's much more that could be said about these, I warned you I wouldn't do the topic justice, but thankfully Nate's going to give us all the information and inspiration we need next week. So to conclude, we are to rightly respond to our opponents by fearing God, not them, by doing good and being above reproach, and by sharing the message of hope with them. And please stand as we close in prayer. Father, thank you that we can trust you, um, that we can look to you for all things in this life, and we don't have to try and wing it on our own, but we know that you have a plan. Help us to be more like your son, and uh, thank you so much that because of him, our eternal condition is not dependent on our own earthly performance, but it's already what uh, you did through your son. And we ask for awareness of and wisdom in opportunities to share this good message with those who are perishing without it. In your name, amen.